The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only. They are not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on the lab report, guess what? What? Dr. Austin Perlmutter. I know, co-author of the book Brainwash. Just in time, because my brain needs a tune-up. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. So when this comes out, mm-hmm. oh, I may or may not have survived a 16-hour round-trip <laughs> family adventure in the car with two little kids. Oh, this will be fun. Hello. Hey, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How are you today? Crushing it. Awesome. How about you? Yeah, I'm doing excellent. Thank you very I'm, much I'm for asking. I'm glad you made it back from your trip. Yeah, uh, it was a good time. And hope you are all having a good time and enjoying this podcast called The Lab Report, brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, where we talk about things like functional medicine and specialty lab testing and integrative therapeutics and the like. If you're new to the show, welcome. Hi. Hi. And if you're returning, thank Hel- you so much for Hello your support. Hello again Hi to again. you <laughs> and to you. I would hope that you would have by now gone to iTunes or Spotify to subscribe to our show, rate us, leave us a review, send us some feedback there. Pretty please. Yeah. If you have additional feedback, you can send that feedback to podcast at gdx.net, which is the email address. And yeah. uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you. We love the email. We sure do. But we have a very special guest today, Dr. Austin Perlmutter. Yeah. And a very timely episode, if I may say. Why do you say that, Patty? What do you mean by timely? Well, because the new year is approaching and Dr. Perlmutter does a lot of work with psychology and behavioral change. And he's so well spoken on the topic. Oh, right. And with this new year thing, mm-hmm. we've got new year's resolutions. People are going to change their lives forever. That's right. That's right. And he's written a book called Brainwash, and he writes for Psychology Today. So he does a lot of work in this field of of how to change your decision making. Right. And maybe this information will help me uh, stick to my resolutions past January (laughs) 3rd or 4th. Well, I think Austin Perlmutter can help you. Why don't we give him a call? Sounds good. Patty. What? Do you know who we have today? Oh, I know. Dr. Austin Perlmutter. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Perlmutter. So Austin Perlmutter, MD, is a board-certified internal medicine physician and New York Times bestselling author. He received his medical degree from the University of Miami and completed his internal medicine residency at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. His focus is in helping others to improve decision-making and quality of life. He's also interested in methods of understanding and reducing burnout in the medical field. Dr. Perlmutter is the co-author of Brainwash, Detox Your Mind for Clearer Thinking, Deeper Relationships, and Lasting Happiness. He also writes for Psychology Today on his blog, The Modern Brain, and is a contributing writer to several health and wellness websites. And with that, thank you so much, Dr. Welcome, Dr. Perlmutter. Dr. For being Perlmutter. Here. I'm so glad to be with you guys uh, via screens, but this is still <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> well, what's interesting about you, Dr. Perlmutter, is that I know your medical specialty is internal medicine, but a lot of your clinical and writing interests are actually in the realm of behavior, psychology, and specifically how brain programming can influence your health. So what is it that led you in that direction? Yeah, this is the story of my life, right? <laughs> um, we all 
we all have these things that happen and some of them for the better, some of them for the worse, but ideally it teaches you more about yourself and what it is that you care about. And I wound up uh, exactly where you described, which is trying to understand behavior and trying to understand decision-making, which is definitely not what uh, internal medicine trained me to do. Mm-hmm. You know, something that I know you guys are, are very familiar with is that most conventional medical training is teaching us how to work on the end of the road. Uh, it's where people are already falling and you're just trying to slow the rate of descent or slow the rate of the fall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and while that's really helpful for a certain group of people, it doesn't necessarily translate into working upstream, preventing disease. So my basic training in internal medicine was learning about how to manage all of these chronic diseases that are the top killers and causes of disability around the world. So things like high blood pressure, heart disease, depression, diabetes, and I learned about how these pharmaceutical drugs targeted specific receptors, uh, different neurotransmitters, chemical pathways, but really very little emphasis, again, on these upstream uh, modulators that would enable us to prevent these diseases. Mm-hmm. And then, as you are both very well familiar with this world, uh, the functional medicine world or the alternative complementary integrative medicine world, this is where there is more of an ability to spend time with the patient, to ask more questions, to get to the root of things. But even here, there are, you know, there are limitations. Mm -hmm. Yes, you have more time available, but we're still not getting to this question of why it is that people do something and not something else. Why is it that people know what to do, but they don't do that thing? They say they care about eating healthier. They say they care about exercising. And it's not just our patients, right? I think I can definitely vouch for this being the case in myself. I know what to do sometimes. Mm -hmm. I should go for a jog. But mm-hmm. I don't. I sit there. I watch Netflix. So <laughs> right. there's just so much left to be understood about our behavior, about our choices, about how we make good or bad decisions, how we regulate our emotions, our psychology. And I'm really interested in how we can understand this, uh, how we can apply this to both patient care as well as within our own lives to improve our quality of life so that we're not just thinking about okay, I want to lose weight, or I want to lower my blood pressure, or I want to feel better. But instead, we're asking about how is it that those things are translated through our bodies, through our hormones, through our neurotransmitters, through our immune system? How can we get to the root of that? And how does that integrate into our psychology, the way that we actually experience life? Yeah. You know, everyone says that they want to feel better, but have difficulty prioritizing the actionable steps. You know, you're just kind of mentioning, you know, watching Netflix instead of exercising for me. It's always like, why can I not find the time to do just a 15 minute meditation? Like, why do I not prioritize that in my life? Like, Do you have any thoughts on why you think that is? Yeah, so let's get to this kind of core of what behavior change looks like, because that's what we're talking about. It's I'm doing A, I want to be doing B. I want to change that behavior so that when I would be sitting on the couch and watching another episode of Queen's Gambit, I'm instead getting up and going for a jog. It's, yeah. it's very explicit. You have these two outcomes. You want one and not the other. Although Queen's Gambit is great, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> so and I think it's, this gets to this, this core of it, which is we tend to view behavior change from a very limited, very simplistic perspective. And from this perspective, there are only two major variables. There's knowledge and there's willpower. So if you know what you want to change, but you don't change, the only thing that's left is a willpower. It's a a character deficit. Mm. Like That's it. Case closed, right? It's just you weren't strong enough internally to make the right choice. Mm -hmm. And 
this translates into the way that uh, we look after patients in the clinic, especially the way conventionally we're trained, which is you tell a patient, here's why you need to eat whatever it is, the DASH diet for their blood pressure. You tell them they need to exercise to lower their blood pressure. They say, I get it. They come back a few months later and they haven't done that. Mm-hmm. It's a willpower thing. I write non-compliant in the chart and sure. it's just, it doesn't get to any of these any of the science as to what actually influences our behavior. So we can talk about neural circuits. We know that differential activation of parts of our brain is involved with and predicts patterns of decision-making. We know that neurotransmitters influence our decision-making. We know that the relative balance of microglial cells, the brain's immune system, whether they're in an activated state where they're more pro-inflammatory or in a more quiescent state, or in an anti-inflammatory state, that that can influence the balance of immune cells within our brain, and that then can influence our behaviors. Hmm. So all of this then gets to how our genes and our environment uh, modulate these systems within the body. And while this seems like a whole lot of different data points, there is such a transition between this, again, basic model of willpower and information and asking, well, actually, what's going on with my immune system? How is that influencing my decisions? Because then you escape from blame, which is really the end result of a willpower deficit. It's I blame myself. I blame the patient. They knew what they needed to do. They didn't do it. And instead, you get curious. You say, well, maybe if we look at levels of interleukin-6 that might tell us a little bit about somebody's inflammatory status and whether that is influencing their decision-making. We know that inflammation predicts more present focused decision making. We know that visceral fat correlates with more present focused decision making. There's so much to take from this, but you've got to take that first step, which is I'm going to put aside the willpower model and I'm going to get curious about what's actually happening within my body. It's interesting. And it's also, it seems like, you know, if inflammation, IL-6, these things are contributing to behavior change, then, you know, your diet is also contributing to inflammation and then that's contributing to behavior change. And so it's sort of like either this downward spiral or either, you know, on the positive side of feed forward cycle, it's really interesting. But yeah, but, but I also appreciate that because we, like you said, in functional medicine, we talk about behavior change and it's always the writing that it's the, it's the patient's not compliant. And then you're really not meeting the patient where they are. So I appreciate what you're saying about willpower and blame and feeling like it's a character flaw. And, you know, how do you explain to a patient that it's not as that simple freedom of choice, that there's more there? We all love freedom of choice. We love freedom uh, right. in the United States. We love it as a concept. Um, but like so many things, I think we get more wrapped up in the idea of it, and it's less about whether it's really helpful or even true. So I think this terminology, freedom of choice, is in many ways a facade that marketers use to hide behind. And if you break it down, there's not much that's all that solid to it. Um, the concept freedom of choice, it assumes several things that are, are kind of incorrect. So it assumes that we are in conscious control of all of our choices. Uh, It assumes, like I said, that our ability to make a good choice is predicated completely on willpower. And so what is this, quote, freedom of choice ignoring? It's ignoring the role of our hormones, our immune system, early life trauma, uh, transgenerational imprinting on the epigenome, how our thinking is influenced by what we eat, how we sleep, if we get exercise or don't. So what I'm trying to say is this is a much more dynamic system of decision making. And when we collapse it down to a simple variable, which is you have your conscious ability to use willpower and make a choice. It puts all the blame on the consumer. 
it, it really gets to that sense of character, that self, that identity as the one that made the conscious choice and it leaves no room for questioning. So you can see if you are producing a junk product filled with high fructose corn syrup, no nutritional value, but that people tend to uh, not be able to stop consuming, mm -hmm. if you're that company, you're much better off saying, oh, well, people can choose whether they want to drink this product or not or eat this product or not. They have freedom of choice. But it isn't like that. We know that when children start consuming these sugary drinks, that it changes their metabolism. We know that metabolic changes influence our decision-making, influence our brain circuitry. So what we're saying here is that choice is a, is a complex uh, reflection of our brain wiring. And that brain wiring is influenced by what we took in, whether that's your food or watching the news or paying attention to social media. And so that all of that, that amalgam of all of these complex influences plays a huge role in our unconscious programming that influences what we decide to do. And freedom of choice ignores all of that and puts it on the consumer as a blame. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I love the way that you laid that out. It makes me wonder and you know there's probably no answer to this but like if you're just shooting from the hip how much do you think decision making is actually in our just conscious will control versus unconscious sort of patterns that have been laid out already well i can tell you what is semi known by the science and then i'll give you my more philosophical perspective on this <laughs> sure. um so when it comes to unconscious decision making the best example would be habitual decisions habits habits are these largely unconscious automatic behaviors and research shows that around 40% of the decisions we make uh, tend to be these more kind of unconscious, habitual type behaviors. So there's that. Mm -hmm. But then there's this, this almost artificial division between conscious and unconscious decision making. Because if you think about what a conscious decision is, you say, oh, well, uh, I was walking down the street and there was a left turn option or a right turn option and I chose to turn right. Uh -huh as though that is a fully conscious choice. Right. But that conscious choice, uh, two things. One is, is it's an integration of a whole lot of information over the span of your lifespan that created uh, your brain such that you made that right turn choice, but also what's happening in the moment, right? You might feel some wind on your face that makes you more likely to go right. You might be feeling a little bit hungry and you want to go home. You don't think about that, but right is closer to home. So there's a lot of unconscious influence on our conscious decision making. Mm. But then the, the more kind of, uh, again, philosophical piece here is what is a conscious choice? You know, is it really something that we're in control of? Or are we just recognizing, realizing what our unconscious brain was already going to do? And, you know, there's some research behind that as well, as far as us just our, our conscious brains being the the observers really of what our unconscious brains are doing and, and taking credit for what's coming from other parts of our brain. Um, it gets into the weeds a little bit as far as what that means in, in actionable steps. But I do think it's an interesting consideration that what we call a conscious choice is built on a whole lot of data uh, from our unconscious mind and may actually just be our realizing what the unconscious mind has already decided. You know, with the new year coming up, a lot of us are thinking about resolutions. So at the end of the day, how do we break that cycle? How do we focus on, on correcting these bad habits? It's such a good question. And I think starting from the perspective of not trying to make the quick fixes, not falling victim to all of these marketing scams, the, the cleanses, the detoxes, all of these 
idea is that you can reset your, your body and your brain and then you're going to be good to go. That we understand that the brain is a, uh, it's a, a meaning-making machine that is always looking to kind of uh, offload tasks to the unconscious brain. And so that's what habitual learning is. It is your habit brain, your unconscious brain, specifically the basal ganglia, paying attention to the things that you do repeatedly and through neuroplasticity, wiring that into your brain so that you can continue to be more in the moment, conscious of other things while your unconscious brain takes care of the boring stuff like brushing your teeth or driving when it's just a straight road. That's not something you have to be consciously aware of. So this gets then, as I mentioned, to neuroplasticity, the idea that our brain is constantly changing as a reflection of what we're taking in, our inputs, our environment. Um, and that is going to be influenced by everything from your microbiome to your visceral fat to your levels of various immune markers in your bloodstream. Um, but what I would like people to understand is that as it relates to making significant changes for the new year, there is a pretty basic formula that's really not that exciting, but that is, is shown to work a whole lot better than any sort of uh, you know, major transition in your exercise plan or in your diet. And that is you engage the habit brain. How do you do that? The habit brain pays attention to things that are done in a stable context. So if you do the same thing uh, in the same way, same place every day, then your habit brain is going to say, okay, I'm going to take care of that for you. Um, and so then it's no longer you having to force yourself to do something healthier each day. It's kind of an unconscious process that's going to happen. And you really have to get that engaged if you want to solidify healthier behaviors. Mm -hmm. But the way to do that is to make it as easy as possible. This is where a lot of people fall apart. They say, I want to start running a 5K every day in the new year, or I want to completely cut out carbohydrates for this new year. Those things aren't sustainable. You can't do them long enough because they're not enjoyable, and therefore they don't get converted into habits. We know that it takes on average about 66 or so days to create a new habit. So what you need to do is find something that is enjoyable, that is easy, that you can get yourself to do in the same context every day long enough that that gets converted into more habitual behavior because then that goes on autopilot. So then instead of you every day eating the bag of potato chips or reaching for that ice cream because it's ingrained in your habits, you're now unconsciously doing the exact opposite, right? So maybe at 2 p.m. each day when you would have been snacking, you're going to jump on the treadmill. You don't have to think about, oh, I really don't want to exercise today. That gets ingrained into your brain and it becomes a habit. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not necessarily the most fun thing. It's certainly not sensational, mm -hmm. but it is the, I think, best way to get from A to B as it relates to healthier behavior. I love that. Yeah. But here's another problem, though. We're currently in this environment of social media and 24-hour news. So what role does our distracted and tech-filled world play in affecting our health and our decision-making in our brains? There are uh, several things to consider here. And just to, to give the scary statistic, humans spend about 11 hours a day on their screens. That's hmm. what, if you look at Americans, American adults are spending 11 hours or so a day engaging wow. with their screens, partially through watching the news, social mm -hmm. media, their computers. Um, that means about 30 years of our lives will be spent <laughs> looking at screens. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, you know, we understand that our health and our happiness are a reflection of the quality of our inputs. That's why food is what it is. If you're eating healthy food, your body reflects the incorporation of that healthier food into your cells, into your cell membranes, into your mitochondrial function, 
if you're eating unhealthy food, you are literally building your body with less healthy inputs and your health reflects that. And what I think people tend to ignore is that it's not all about the physical inputs, right? It's one thing to eat food, but when you're watching, let's say, some stress-inducing news, you say, oh, mm-hmm. well, that's just the news. It's not like I'm actually eating junk food. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second that that information hits your eyeballs, hits your ears, it is being converted into physical, chemical, electrical signals within your body. So it becomes real the instant that you consume it. And we know that that consumption of things like stressful news, of things like too much uh, negative social media, that that has an effect on our brain, that it changes activation patterns in our brain, and that that leads to more unhealthy behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I think people don't understand when it comes to something like watching stressful news especially is that there is a very real effect on your quality of life. And you may not make that connection because it may be delayed. You may not understand that after watching 20 minutes of stressful news report that you get in an argument with your spouse several hours later Mm -hmm. that there's a connection there or that you don't sleep well that night and therefore the next day you're more emotionally reactive and you're less present. You may not make that connection. But every bit of input changes our outputs. And what we know is that social media, the news, these things are are trying to keep our attention. And they're willing to be sensational. They're willing to be more negative. They're willing to kind of uh, try to get us upset as a strategy to keep us engaged. And that changes the activation patterns within our brain that activates the amygdala. It keeps us more stressed. It takes us away from empathy And the long term, the downstream consequences are really the things that we're experiencing now, which is uh, an epidemic of things like anxiety and depression, but also poor overall health with chronic metabolic conditions being, you know, among the top contributors to death and disability around the world. Yeah, Hmm. that's fascinating. And, you know, that reminds me of when we interviewed Liz Lipsky once and she was talking about the word diet and she brought it back to the Greek word dieta, which is not only the things you put in your body, but everything you allow in your environment, which would include things on a screen. So that's fascinating. Yeah. And it makes me think, you know, as clinicians, I think it's becoming more and more common practice to recommend something like a news fast, you know, or a social media fast. Just Mm -hmm. give you got to change the quality of the inputs. Like you're saying, it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we talked a little bit about kind of using the habit system as far as a a way like, you know, taking converting the bad habits and and using that same system for good, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, Are there some other strategies that we can use to kind of protect our brains against unhealthy decisions? This is basically the the plot of the book Brainwash that I wrote with my dad. Yeah. But yes, there are there. There are strategies that all of us can use. And I think that um, you know, the habitual system is, is one of the really keys. But what we talk about more in the book is that there's a balance that we need between two big parts of our brain, one being the prefrontal cortex, the most uh, kind of anterior part of the brain, which is involved with um, higher level thinking, uh, it's involved with reflective thinking, weighing the pros and cons, is involved with cognitive empathy, mm-hmm. and then the amygdala which we usually, uh, you might have heard of as the fear center of the brain, but it's involved with emotion, memory, decision-making, reward. Um, And certainly not the case that the amygdala is bad and the prefrontal cortex is good, but what we do know is that you need a communication between the two, and you especially need the prefrontal cortex to be able to calm down the amygdala, which is hugely involved in the stress response. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and that a, a dysregulation there or a breakdown in those communication patterns is correlated with worse decision-making, addiction, it's correlated with anxiety. And so what we talk about in the book are strategies to engage the prefrontal cortex and calm down the amygdala. And again, we had enough material to write a whole book about it, so I don't think I can <laughs> yeah. completely cover that in the next few seconds. <laughs> right. But um, as far as the highest yield, biggest bang for your buck, I'm a huge proponent of the use of sleep as a, a way of activating the prefrontal cortex, calming down the amygdala, and solidifying the pathways there. We know that as little as one night of sleep deficit is correlated with an increased activation of the amygdala in response to stressful stimuli. Um, we know that getting more sleep seems to help connect those two parts of the brain. And the, the correlate there is we know that we make worse decisions when we're sleep deprived. We know that we're more emotionally reactive. We know that we eat more food and more unhealthy food mm -hmm. um, up in the neighborhood of like 375 cal kilocalories in one day of after sleep deficit. And so I think as a starting point, we need to appreciate that getting that good sleep, seven to eight hours of night, that is, uh, you know, in a, a cool environment without extra light, without extra blue light before bed, without extra stressful inputs before bed is an amazing way to reset your brain such that you can then make other healthy decisions, mm -hmm. things like good food choices, um, things like exercise. So often, a lot of clinicians use fear tactics to try to get people to change their behavior. And, you know, that what you're talking about, the, the balance between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala and the fear center, like how, you know, at the end of the day, does that fear tactic, you know, you better change your behavior or else these poor outcomes are going to happen. Does that have any valid? It, it doesn't. Does, yeah. It doesn't really work, right? Um, and I don't think you need to look at the research, although it is there to support this, that you can't just intimidate people into long-term behavior change. I mean, it, it does work in certain cases, don't get me wrong, but it isn't necessarily the most effective strategy. Yeah. And that there are so many kind of reasons for me why that that makes sense and why uh, a more kind of um, team-based approach that involves compassion, empathy, uh, and curiosity is, is a whole lot better. But I think this really gets to the idea of trying to figure out a why uh, for treatment decisions, for mm -hmm. treatment plans. And, you know, so much of the time it's the clinician saying, I need you to lower your blood pressure. And the patient <laughs> says, um, okay, uh, that sounds really important, but right. they don't care. Right. This is one of the biggest realizations I had towards the end of my training, which was I was fixated on lowering somebody's A1C. I was fixated on lowering their weight. I so badly wanted them to improve their ejection fraction of their heart. And I never asked the question of, do they care? Right. I assumed that that was their priority. I assumed that because I was fixated on getting their A1C from 7 to 6.8, that they also made that their top priority. And they don't. People don't. People have different preferences. And so I think it really it requires you to get to a why that you can both agree with. Mm -hmm. So if, if that person's why is they want to spend more time with their grandkids, that's actually why they're in the doctor's office because they want to live long enough to spend time with their grandkids, then I can figure out how my objectives overlap with theirs. And then I can explain how their blood pressure, their blood sugar, their heart function, that these are things that are tools to allow them to spend that time with their grandkids. But until you get there, you're basically both working on different objectives. and a lot of the time, it's just them showing up because they have to, and you're assuming that you can, through your force of will, through your intellect, uh, kind of sledgehammer them hard enough <laughs> that they care about what you care about. Yeah. Right. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, speaking about everyone agreeing on the why, during this pandemic, most people are kind of hyper-focused on improving their immune health. And so how do you talk about the role of the immune system beyond infectious disease? I recently published an article on Medium. They have a, a channel called Elemental, and the article was called The Coronavirus Took Advantage of Our Weaknesses. Hmm. Uh, and, and this is basically the topic, what you just said. It's yeah. uh, the immune system, infectious disease, uh, and where you go beyond that. And, you know, we are fixated on sh the quick fixes in our society. Yeah. Um, here we are now in the middle of a pandemic, and we're concerned. We're scared. We're worried that we are going to get this infection, that we're going to transmit it to somebody else, that we're going to have a health issue because of it. So the conversation is unsurprisingly here's how to boost your immunity. Here's how to fix your immunity. And so you can get on with your life. Mm -hmm. But what I'm talking about in this article is that the vast majority of people who have complications from COVID are those with pre-existing conditions. Right. And I would almost include a, an elevated biological age as a pre-existing condition because we know that elderly people tend to do worse. And why might this be the case? Well, all of these pre-existing conditions, heart disease, uh, even things like depression, but certainly diabetes and in many ways, biological aging, um, relate to changes in immune function. And those aren't necessarily correlated with, you know, what we generally think about as a strong immune system that can fight off uh, infections um, in a more traditional sense, even though they share a lot of the same kind of biomarkers. So mm -hmm. they might have elevated inflammation. Um, so fascinating little piece here. Interleukin-6, which I mentioned before, it mm -hmm. is one of the prototypical inflammatory uh, mediators and one of the markers we look at in the bloodstream. Interleukin-6 is a predictor of worse outcomes from COVID. Um, so if a person has elevation in interleukin-6, they have a higher likelihood of going on to develop complications from the disease. Mm -hmm. Interleukin-6 also predicts higher rates of depression. It's one of the cytokines that is uh, thought to potentially play a role in increasing uh, the kind of inflammatory response that is involved with depression. Hmm. And the, the point here being that these conditions that we've largely looked at as uh, metabolic diseases or non-infectious diseases are, are not so different from the the infectious diseases as far as the way that our bodies respond. Um, it's similar pathways that are involved. So with all of that said, the, the point I would make here is that um, the immune system isn't just a defense against the environment, that it's really a, a translator. It's a, a conversion pathway from outside inputs to inside action. Hmm. And you think about this as it relates to brain function and bringing this back to decision-making and how inflammation predicts more present-focused decision-making. We know that the relative levels of inflammation in our brain may change neuroplasticity, that at low levels, inflammation actually promotes neuroplasticity. At high levels, basically the levels that most people are probably experiencing, um, that it is an inhibitor of neuroplasticity. So the immune system is involved with every aspect of our health. And it's just another good example of what happens when you start questioning things a little bit more, when you get beyond the quick fix of boosting immunity or whatever and say, what is the immune system actually doing for me? And to, to bring this back to the, the general topic of this podcast, 
as it relates to getting yourself um, unstuck, that's the way that I'm looking at this, getting yourself unstuck from poor health, from poor habits, from poor decision-making, you've got to look at these variables, one of which is the immune system. And you've got to be curious about it. How can you understand and improve your immune function so that you're going to set yourself up for success in life? Um, and again, you've got to get beyond the idea that it's just the defense against the environment, because when you do, there's so much you can do to improve your immune function and improve other aspects of your life. I love that. That's amazing. And, and so timely, it, you know, gives us a lot to think about as clinicians and it's, you know, it's a paradigm shift. It's a way to kind of, to, to a, like you said, stay curious and B to just contextualize this in a bigger way. So I, we really appreciate your time. Um, before we let you go, I have one additional question that we call the, f- the fireball, and, and it's kind of off the topic, fireball. and um, it's supposed to stress people out, not intentionally, <laughs> but I have, I'm just curious, uh, we've asked this of several other amazing guests that we've had, do you have a favorite soup? A favorite soup? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that is that is completely out of left field. <laughs> yes. Uh, let's see. It, you know, I had my favorite soups before I started caring about nutrition. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> When I grew up, uh, minestrone soup and Italian wedding soups were yeah. really wonderful. Yeah. yeah. It, but I guess these days, uh, let's see. Tough question. <laughs> stumper. <laughs> it's a stumper. We've experimented with some stuff during quarantine and yeah. some interesting flavors have come out. Flies <laughs> in the pantry, but I'm not going to recommend any of those right now. They, they need more experimentation. Awesome. <laughs> we'll take it. Well, Dr. Austin Perlmutter, we can't thank you enough for your time today. And we want to encourage all of our listeners to, to check out your book, Brainwash, Detox Your Mind for Clearer Thinking, Deeper Relationships and Lasting Happiness. Check out your blog on Psychology Today, The Modern Brain. And actually, check them out on Instagram. We actually follow you on Instagram um, at Austin Perlmutter. There's a lot of really great videos that you post there, a lot of amazing information. And we can't thank you enough, Dr. Perlmutter. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you both. This has been wonderful. Well, Michael, I think you and Dr. Perlmutter are two peas in a pod. I could have talked to him for hours. I know that this is your passion, too, how your brain works and how behavioral change works. And so I was listening to him speak, and I thought, oh, we're going to be here forever. Michael's going to keep going. Well, like he expressed, I mean, as a clinician, you just get so frustrated when people are, quote, unquote, noncompliant that Mm -hmm. you ultimately get to the place of, like, to be a better clinician, I have to figure out how this behavior change thing works. Yeah, it's fascinating. And the way he describes it and, and the way he talks about all the all the factors that can affect every decision you make, I found really interesting. I agree. I already miss him. <laughs> we can call him again. Next time on The Lab Report, a year in review. Yeah, we're going to look backward to help you move forward. I'm going to bring out all the jingles. Great. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. All anxiety. What's the name of that song? Old Lang Syne. Old Lang Syne. What does that mean? I don't know. Why is that so difficult to say? Even that song, for all acquaintance, be forgotten.
have never brought to mind. What is that? Even, what does all that mean? It's a bunch of nonsense. We gotta figure that one out. 